2: Well, my name is Percy Green II. I should be described as a former chairperson of Action, which was a protest organization, 100% volunteer, interracial, and nonviolent.
0: Percy Green, as he says, was the head of Action, Action Council to Improve Opportunities for Negroes.
2: We were focused on uh, jobs, especially jobs for Black males. We were proactive. We was not a reactive, oriented organization.
0: Percy started action in the mid-1960s in St. Louis. It was a Black-led interracial group focused on economic security, jobs and housing mostly. The group's headquarters were on North Union Boulevard, a few miles north of the Washington University campus. Once, after a break-in, Percy decided they needed some dogs to protect the office. The problem was...
2: We didn't have anyone there to take the dogs out or whatnot, so the dogs pooped uh, in the headquarters. So we then started accumulating all of that dog poop. So we had uh, five-gallon buckets or whatnot, and we was putting uh, that in there.
0: Why they put the poop in buckets, I have no idea. But then Percy realized, hey, maybe this could be useful. At the time, Action was in the middle of a campaign against the local utility company protesting racist hiring practices.
2: So it just dawned on me that say, hey, you know, we hadn't hit the utility companies in a little while, and we could possibly hit them, utilizing the element of surprise, pointing out that we tired of their bullshit installing and hiring on black males.
0: So they take these five-gallon buckets of dog poop, Percy and another member of action dressed up like janitors, and headed over to the utility company.
2: We walked right on past security, uncovered the, the five-gallon, the big five-gallon cans of poop. We had some brand-new uh, paintbrushes, and then we took our brushes and su- stuck it down in the poop and just put it all up on the counter. The counter where people would come to pay their utility bill. they just start painting dog poop all over the counter. And folks, they were just in shock. I mean, they couldn't imagine, well, they couldn't imagine What in the hell are these? What's going on here? The little security person, he peeping out there. He was in a state of shock as well.
0: So shocked, in fact, that no one stopped him.
2: So we then went on to the, the little hallway and then wrote all up on the windows, tired of your bullshit, all on the windows. Wrote, tired of your bullshit,
0: in poop, on all of the windows. But still nobody stopped them.
2: So we got on the elevator. <laughs> the elevator was almost at quitting time. They paint the walls of the elevator with poop. And uh, finally the police come and uh, say, well, what are we doing? You all are under arrest. Well, we weren't going to go and make their job easier. So we sat down with our buckets. And then we took the brushes and put it and in, 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 in painted our around our wrists and our ankles. With dog poop. They covered their
0: wrists and ankles with dog poop.
2: That's the way they were gonna to have to pick us up. So finally they had some rookies that they had to bring in to pick us up and put us in the cruiser. <laughs> well, you know, so that was one.
0: That was one, just one of many battles and Action's ongoing war. I'm Nina Gildan Seavey, and this is My Fugitive. You can imagine, Percy Green and his organization were pretty well known around St. Louis and by the FBI, which considered action to be a black extremist group in the mold of the Black Panthers. I have a pair of memos written in the spring of 1968. The first is from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. It went out to all of the FBI offices across the country, entitled, "Counterintelligence Program, Internal Security, Disruption of the New Left. The New Left was a catch-all term for young people in the activist counterculture, coined by the activists themselves. In a place like St. Louis, these were the kinds of people who looked different, thought different, and acted different than the city's dominant white conservative culture. People like Howard Mechanic, In three single-space pages, Hoover outlined his secret plan to, quote, expose, disrupt, and otherwise neutralize the activities of the various New Left organizations. He closed the memo like this. The importance of this new endeavor cannot and will not be overlooked. Meaning, your careers are at stake. Get it done. The second memo is a reply to Hoover from the special agent in charge of the St. Louis Bureau. It lists four organizations based in St. Louis that will be targets for disruption and neutralization. The first is Percy's Group Action. There's SLDR, St. Louis Draft Resistance, CSDR, the Committee to Support Draft Resistance, and SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. All four of these organizations were my father's clients. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth saying here again. In the war against the so-called enemies of the state, St. Louis was different than most other cities. For one, the FBI had its own megaphone there. In 1962, the FBI was feeding information to the conservative morning newspaper the St. Louis Globe Democrat. It was one of a handful of papers the agency was using to publish anti-civil rights propaganda. A young Patrick Buchanan, Richard Nixon's future speechwriter, was a leading conservative voice on the Globe Democrats' editorial page. We were strong law and order. And the publisher, uh, he was a huge figure in the conservative movement out there in St. Louis. The publisher was cozy with J. Edgar Hoover, Buchanan told me. And one day, the publisher came to see Buchanan. And said, I want you to do an editorial on, on Martin Luther King. He handed him some documents. And he gave me Papers.
2: There wasn't any identifying title on the papers where they came from. So I went in and read them, about seven pages. I said, look, this is a lot of good stuff, but I said, I don't think we ought to use it because this could be libelous and there's no backup for it. And he'd given me those pages, and he said, don't worry about the backup. (laughs) And I took that to mean that our
0: friends at the Bureau had provided the backup. Friends at the FBI...
3: I think that if you read the Globe Democrat, there is a paranoia about communism globally and um, that is shaded by a set of implications that communist ideas and even communist individuals have infiltrated the institutions of the United States.
0: This is Walter Johnson, author of The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States.
3: There is the active cooperation with COINTELPRO and the consultation between the editorial staff at the Globe Democrat and certain reporters and the FBI about planting stories. But there's also an extremely granular attention to the civil rights struggle in St. Louis, including one particular editorial that named Percy Green and advocated that the police beat him up if he continued his, quote, monkey shines.
0: Painting the electric company with poop hadn't endeared Percy to the Globe Democrat or to local judges. Percy wasn't always an easy client for my father to defend. But his hijinks were in service of a serious purpose. And my dad represented Percy a lot. Percy didn't just use guerrilla tactics to fight racial discrimination. He also used the courts, among other things, to sue the company he worked for. Percy and my dad took that lawsuit all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called McDonnell Douglas Corporation versus Green. I was at that Supreme Court hearing, in the front row with my little brother Daniel, when my dad argued the case. This is him responding to Chief Justice Warren Burger.
3: They had a record before them that showed the treatment of Green when he was working for McDonnell Douglas. And they saw that in August of 1964, when this totem pole was drawn up, that the vice president of McDonnell Douglas, based upon the evidence of Mr. Robertson, drew a line over Green's name, and he was the highest senior man in a whole department of 100 white men, in a research department, the only black man. And they drew the line over his name as the man to be laid off.
0: I remember sitting there thinking, Dad, I don't think you're supposed to be yelling at these people. He had a hot temper. I remember he really lost it at one point with Justice Rehnquist. Most of my dad's cases didn't get to the Supreme Court. He represented local groups and local cases, including those four groups that were listed on the memo sent from the St. Louis office to J. Edgar Hoover in the spring of 1968. The groups named as the Targets for COINTELPRO more after the break.
1: You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
0: COINTELPRO included a whole range of activities, using informants to ask boring and tedious questions at activist meetings, planting suspicious material in people's cars and homes, harassing their family members. Percy Green's wife used to get calls in the middle of the night.
2: My wife at the time, um, she was... uh, overwhelmed in uh, a number of times with uh, phone calls with threatening uh, messages uh, or and many times that uh, she get a call that I had been killed and for her to come down and view the body
0: there were wiretaps and bugs and of course the poison pen letter sent anonymously to the target's home or workplace meant to sow trouble like the one the FBI sent to Dr. King and his wife Coretta suggesting that King kill himself, along with an audio tape from his hotel rooms. But those letters weren't just for leaders like King. They were for people you've never heard of, too. People like Jane Sauer. She was known as Jane Simon at the time. Jane was a member of an organization called the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, WILF, and she was also a member of Percy Green's group, Action. Jane took part in one of Action's most high-profile events, at a yearly ceremony called the Veiled Prophet Ball. It's the kind of wealthy society event that happens in a lot of places, a cotillion or a debutante ball. The elite members of the community presenting their teenage daughters into society, or as the group's website puts it, the preeminent formal gala for introducing young ladies. The ball is invitation only, but there's a parade too, through the streets of downtown St. Louis. Lots of people come out for it. My dad used to take my brothers and me when we were kids. Floats, dancers, marching bands. The organizers call it America's birthday parade. The ball is emceed every year by a member of St. Louis society, though it's never revealed who that person is because he wears a thick veil. He's called the Veiled Prophet. It's a tradition that dates back to the late 1870s. There's a woodcut of the first Veiled Prophet from the era before photographs were common. Walter Johnson.
3: It's difficult to describe that particular woodcut without saying the words white hood.
0: I'm willing to bet that most people in St. Louis don't know the origin story of the Veiled Prophet. I didn't. My father certainly didn't. But it's interesting to think about it in light of the forces that have long been at work in the city. The protection of white power and the crushing of dissent. The year before this image was made, in 1877, There had been a general strike in St. Louis and around the country. Workers were striking against the railroads and they formed alliances with unions and other laborers.
3: And there was a brief period of time where the working people of St. Louis took control of the city. They took control of the city from the police and from the elected leadership and from the corporations and from the railroads. And that was an alliance of workers of various ethnicities, white ethnicities, and African Americans. And it was threatening.
0: The strike was overthrown just after a few days, and the elite of the city came together and created this figure, the one represented on that woodcut, the veiled prophet.
3: I think that if you look at the woodcut, the 1878 woodcut of the first veiled prophet, and you see that he is dressed in, in white robes and a white hood and carrying a revolver, I, I think it's hard to miss the threat that says, we're in charge. These are our streets.
0: White city fathers spent the next hundred years solidifying their control over St. Louis's streets. They executed a carefully crafted, long-range strategy using zoning and urban renewal projects and neighborhood bylaws. What Johnson calls... A Beginner's Guide to Building a Racist City. In other cities, segregation took the form of massive resistance to integration. A social movement, Johnson says. In St. Louis, the strategy was different. Use city planning to systematically demolish Black St. Louis, and send its residents into the farthest corners of the region, away from the white communities. Housing rights activists gave the plan its own moniker, Black removal by white approval. So in 1972, when Action did some over-the-top stunt, like taking aim at the Veiled Prophet ball, it wasn't really a stunt. The white power structure had been in place for over a century, and they were using the weapons they had to fight it.
4: We had members within Action who were part of the Veil vale Profit organization who could not be open sympathizers with us, but they were sympathizers with us. And we obtained tickets to go to the Veil vale Profit Ball.
0: That's Jane Sauer again. She and another action member named Gina get these tickets, and they go to the ball with their balcony seats.
4: We had no idea what we were going to do, and Gina saw this, it was in the early days of television, there was a huge cable that went from some electric box upstairs down to the TV cameras. And she pulled on it and she thought it felt pretty stable. So we just on the spot concocted that she would slide down the cable and try to take off the mask of the prophet because he was kept secret. He really looked like a Klansman. She said, which one of us is going down the cable? And I never was very athletic. So I looked at her and I said, you are going down the cable. (laughs) And she slid down the cable and that cable actually broke. And she landed about four feet in front of the prophet (laughs) and in her ball gown. And she reached up and just pulled off his mask.
0: That year, the Veiled Prophet was a vice president at Monsanto, one of the big agribusiness corporations in town. So that gives you some idea about Jane. Yes, she was a recording secretary, but she was also pretty badass. Together, these two stories, the dog poop and the unmasking, they give you a decent picture of action. They're not afraid of attention. And they got it.
4: We always felt that we were somehow infiltrated. We did not know who it was. When we would plan a demonstration, the police would be there at the same time we were, always. I mean, it was just consistent. We planned on the phone. We planned at meetings. But, you know, if you don't know whether the person you're planning with is the person that's infiltrated the organization, then... How do you really keep up your guard?
0: Jane was pretty sure her phone was tapped.
4: I did hear clicking on my phone. So actually, one of my friends that was in action, and I tried to say really outrageous things. (laughs) You know, something like talk about our sex life or something. Just anything we could think of.
0: Jane's husband wasn't in action or involved in any movement work.
4: I was getting deeper into activities like action, and he was becoming more opposed to it.
0: And one day she came home and he had this letter.
4: I remember it was in the kitchen. And he's waving this handwritten letter around. And he wouldn't let me touch the letter because he was afraid I'd rip it up. You could get a divorce for infidelity. So he, this was his verification that I was a bad woman. So he wasn't going to let me touch the letter, but he held it up and showed it to me.
0: I have this letter. I got it from the FBI through my Freedom of Information requests. It's written on a slant with lousy grammar and spelling, and it's astonishingly racist. There's no good way to read this letter because it's me, a white woman, reading words written by a white man doing his racist impression of a black woman. It starts out, look man, I guess your old lady doesn't get enough at home or she wouldn't be shucking and jiving with our black men in action, you dig? Like all she wants to integrate is the bedroom and it was signed, a soul sister.
4: And when I saw that letter, at first I thought he wrote it. He, meaning
0: her husband.
4: I mean, I just, that's all I could think of. It's like, because I did not think any of the women that I knew in action would have written that letter. They were my friends. And the letter itself was a very racist letter. There were misspelled words. The language was poor. It was how some white guy would think an African-American woman would speak. And somehow, I guess I convinced him that this letter might not be true. I don't know where it came from. And at one point, he said, Maybe the FBI wrote it. And I said to him, you are paranoid. You have gone off the deep end. The FBI doesn't care one bit about me or action. I mean, I just didn't really think that anything that I did was of that great importance that the FBI would take notice. When I thought about us being infiltrated, I thought about it sort of being like a local police thing. I didn't think that we attracted any attention outside of anywhere other than St. Louis.
0: But she was wrong about that. I have a second document, one Jane's husband didn't see. It's from the special agent in charge of the FBI office in St. Louis, a guy named J. Wallace LeProd to J. Edgar Hoover. LeProd is the same agent who bugged Martin Luther King's hotel room in Milwaukee back in 1964. In his memo to Hoover, LeProd wrote, St. Louis, meaning the St. Louis Bureau, proposes to anonymously send a copy of the enclosed letter, the letter Jane's husband got. Someone, whose name is redacted, told the FBI that Jane's husband had been asking around, trying to find out if Jane was having an affair. LeProd goes on, the resulting marital tempest could well result in action losing their corresponding secretary, and the WILP, that's the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, Losing a valuable leader, thus striking a major blow against both organizations. In other words, if the FBI broke up her marriage, she'd be a single mom, three kids, no time to do movement work.
4: The letter was kind of the final straw in the marriage, and then the dispute over the letter and um, what, and my activities and whether I would agree to no longer participate, and I got divorced fairly shortly after because he, be, he became very enraged over this letter.
0: Jean did wind up dropping out of the Women's League. She kept on with action, though. It was compelling, she said. In early June 1970, J. Wallace Laprade reported back to Hoover about the letter. In the section labeled Tangible Results, he wrote, Jane has taken an apartment during this separation, which might become a permanent arrangement. This matrimonial stress and strain should cause her to function much less effectively in action. There's a lot that's disturbing about Jane's experience. The FBI's racism and its jive-talking misspelled letter, the ease with which the Bureau destroyed someone's marriage and pushed a woman into single motherhood in order to disrupt her activist work. And then there's this other thing. Whoever the FBI's informant was, that person knew Jane's work in action quite well. From the informant report, we know it was a woman. She knew the intimate details of Jane's marriage and knew Jane's vulnerabilities. She was likely a friend of Jane's. Another thing we know from the letter to Hoover is that the St. Louis field office of the FBI wasn't just watching action. Its agents were also gathering intelligence on other local New Left groups. Including the draft resistors and students at Washington University. Dev Kennedy was the student body president at WashU in 1967. We met him in the first episode. One day he got a call from someone he didn't know, saying that they had information for him about a demonstration. Told Dev to meet him, gave him an address.
3: And I got about two blocks away and I said, You idiot. <laughs> You're going to go two blocks away, and they're going to be uh, bugging your apartment while you're gone. So I assumed that's probably what they did. So after that, I was very careful about what I said.
0: Dev knew. The surveillance probably wasn't limited to bugs.
3: Well, one just assumed. Uh, I wasn't that dumb at that age that if you start talking about things uh, about overthrowing the government, it gets on the papers that this might interest the FBI. And, you know, there were major demonstrations going on. I just assumed that there were students who were informers. I did not know who they were. And that's the insidious thing about informers, too, is that you suspect everyone, and that's the whole point of it.
4: You know, we always talked about this issue of informants. Be careful what you say, what you say on the phone, this, that, the other.
0: Bobby Wunsch was another activist at WashU, at the same time as Howard Mechanic. The students would talk about surveillance, about informants, but it was hard to imagine that one of their own was reporting back to the FBI.
4: Perhaps I was very naive. I was very young and very naive. I only thought about it as the people in the trench coats. I never thought about it as people who looked like us and who were part of our group. I really didn't have any idea, and I never looked at someone and thought, I wonder if they are.
0: But they were. Just as Howard Mechanic. Next time on My Fugitive. Let me pull
3: up that document here. Student volunteer, you provide the following information. There's a meeting for an alternative to SDS. Howard Mechanic stated due to a mix up, one group held a meeting at the. Okay. Mechanics said he wants to beat up some pigs.
2: We take this action not for the purpose of expanding the war into Cambodia, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam and winning the just peace we all desire. At least 114 colleges reported student strikes. The campus fire burned out an ROTC building at Washington University in St. Louis while students chanted, remember, Kent." The reason I went to campus that night was with a couple of friends to
3: pick up some LSD. The FBI wanted to stop the anti-war movement. It wasn't justice, it was a message. It could have happened somewhere else to somebody else. I just happened to be the lucky guy.
0: My Fugitive is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. You can binge all episodes from this series exclusively on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey has all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. This show is hosted by me, Nina Gilden Our producers are Kat Aaron, Agaranish Ashagre, Justine Daum, Janelle Anderson, and Maria Robbins-Somerville, with additional production support from Sandra Ellen. The show is edited by Joel Lovell, with support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Research and fact-checking by Charles Richter and Ben Phelan. Our engineers are Noriko Okabe, Hannes Brown, and Will Bigwood. This episode features original compositions by Daoud Anthony and Hannes Brown, as well as music from Blue Dot Sessions special thanks to our executive producers, Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thank you to each of our guests for joining us to help tell this story. To see photos, FBI documents, and more, follow us on Instagram at myfugitivepodcast and visit our website at myfugitivepodcast.com.